WDBM East Lansing. 89 FM. The Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing <laughs> the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Good evening and thank you for joining us on Impact 89 FM. My name is Abby Newton and you are listening to Exposure. I hope you are staying warm in this bitterly cold Michigan weather. Now, if you are driving on the roads, please be careful and do get home safely. Now, tonight we'll be showcasing the college lifestyle in terms of health. We will delve into what college students eat and drink, when they sleep and when they move. But before we do so, let's take a look at some of today's headlines. The Michigan Department of Transportation has been busy with the constant snow, ice, and cold weather. WLNS says MDOT workers are feeling overwhelmed, while the weather has also caused the organization to go through state funding fairly quickly. President Obama will be making the State of the Union address tonight at 9 o'clock p.m. NPR says we can look forward to hearing about income equality in America, the Affordable Care Act, immigration, and foreign policy in Iran and Iraq. Obama has made income inequality a major theme for his second term in office. We will most likely hear about the next steps in his plans to alleviate the problem. It is also likely that we will see a step forward in immigration reform during 2014 and beyond. Lastly, the president will speak about removing troops from Afghanistan this year. Again, you are listening to Exposure, and I'm Abby Newton. Freshmen enter college with excitement, nerves, and a little uncertainty. Usually it is the first time they live away from home, and usually it is the first time they have to make so many decisions by themselves. And many of those decisions are lifestyle choices. In college, students have to decide what they eat, when and how often they sleep, when they do homework, when they hang out with friends, how they spend their weekends, and how often they exercise. All of these choices and decisions combine to make up the college lifestyle. Now we here at Impact were curious about how this lifestyle is impacting our health. Tonight, we will uncover the health of a college student. Um, my perception of my health is that it is definitely depleted in overall fitness. Um, I don't know. I eat more, so I guess that's good. But yeah, I don't know. It's, it's definitely not where it should be. To start off, I thought it'd be good to talk to a few experts. The first one being Rhonda Bakram. She is a registered nutrition at Olin Health Center at Michigan State University. And she actually had a more positive view of the nutrition and diet of college students. Actually, I have a much more positive perception about it than I think that many students think that they don't have that good of nutrition. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, but I think culturally people, it, it sort of goes back to how we make nutrition so hard for people and that we feel like we get told there are so many rules about what we should and shouldn't be doing, mm-hmm. where I see nutrition as much more flexible, so I don't think that the diets of students are as bad as somehow, sometimes it is portrayed. Okay. And when you talk about flexibility, can you be more specific and uh, what your idea of flexibility in nutrition and diet could entail? Yeah. You know, the thing about nutrition is when they set up the recommended dietary intake and you have values that people are supposed to have, you have to also remember there's a safety factor built into that and that also for many nutrients we retain them. So there are ways that we can eat more one day of something, more of something else another day, and over time that will work just fine, Mm. for example. 
So nutrition to me is someday you do this, someday you do that, someday you do another thing, and eventually it just all works out over over time. So it's not about one label or one meal or even one day. Mm-hmm. You know, because sometimes when people look at diets, they focus on just, oh, I can't believe I can't eat that because this label says this is really a bad food. And see, I don't see nutrition that way. I see mm-hmm. it as much more flexible. Well, that's exciting. Does that help explain it Yes, a bit? absolutely. And uh, looking more into the actual food and diet, mm-hmm. how many um, meals do you recommend that students eat a day? I recognize that students have a very varied uh, time schedules <laughs> and lifestyles, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't like to think about meals per day. What I, what I usually talk to students about is eating frequency mm. so that you eat something within an hour of getting up because you've sort of fasted overnight, basically. Mm-hmm. And then you eat sort of every two to five hours afterwards, depending on how hungry you are. Hmm. So if your day is longer, you'll eat more often. If your day is shorter, you'll eat less often. Rhonda and I also spoke about what students should do if they don't understand how to eat healthy. Well, I think, you know, you bring up a good point because you use the word healthy. Mm-hmm. That That is a word that is much misunderstood. Um, and actually, I always tell students I don't tend to even use the word healthy because mm-hmm. healthy has become quite um, restrictive eating focused. Mm-hmm. It's sort of focused on fruits and vegetables, low-calorie, low-sugar, fat-free, calorie-free. People always think lighter is better you know, that that sort of approach with the word healthy. Mm-hmm. So I think healthy has actually really contributed to more disordered eating for people. I, I try to tell people what we're really working for is building you a positive relationship with food in your body, mm-hmm. okay, which means you sort of put all food on an equal level morally, so it's not good or bad, it's just different. I'm mm-hmm. not saying nutrition's not important. Like you need calcium, you need protein, you need fat, you need calories. You need all of those things. And you also, that means you also have room to have a from them from a variety of sources. So how do you learn to listen more intuitively to your body, which will give you fantastic signals for, I'm hungry, mm-hmm. <laughs> I know what I want, I eat it, and then I know when I'm done. So I work on internal um, cues for hunger, appetite, and satiety. It's called intuitive eating. And if they can really embrace that, then eating is something they'll just do naturally with, and eating well and a variety of food. There's a lot of research to support that versus trying to control it by only eating quote-unquote good food. I liked how she said that. It's not about eating healthy, but maintaining a good relationship with food. I think that it's good to have conversations about relationships with food mm-hmm. and also to talk about what you've heard and whether you, and to find out whether it's the truth or not. I think, you know, when people just focus on science of nutrition, like, like this label says this, this, and this, or I need this amount of calcium or whatever it is or fat, they, they forget that, that is, you can have that knowledge, and a lot of people hear it. A lot of students take nutrition classes. They have that knowledge, but it doesn't really change what they do with food. So what, so what I find is not about what people know. It's about, it's about why they do what they do. Mm-hmm. So having that, so why, you know, checking in with yourself or checking in with someone about why, why do I do this, even though I know this. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it, it's because they just think it has to be so rigid, and it really doesn't. And so, you know, it's really good. That's why it's good to meet with someone who understands that and can really help you kind of move along that way. Now, Rhonda also sees many students come into her office in need of help from eating disorders. I actually see disordered eating and body image mm-hmm. as, as actually one of the huge, more significant problems on this campus. And so I deal, that is primarily what I deal with in eating disorders. Eating disorders and disordered eating come from many, many places, and mm-hmm. there's no way to just narrow it down to one. Sure. You have to think about eating disorders as not about food, 
but really about using food in some way as a coping mechanism, whether it's about um, not eating to just sort of numb yourself or binge eating to just sort of numb your feelings and shove them down. And there's a lot of reasons why eating disorders develop. Mm -hmm. Never is it a matter of choice. It's really just sort of a process that that happens. And so I don't really like to give one reason, whether it's dieting or whether it's control issues, whether it's part of a co-concurring condition for a mental health issue. Um, it could be a second-generation eating disorder. You know, someone in their family had one. Um, it can be just cultural in terms of how you see you need to be to live in this country or, mm -hmm. you know, to succeed. So there's lots and lots of reasons why. Luckily, we live on a campus that has some good options for college students. I'd say I'm pretty healthy. Try to eat well at the calf because it's easy to because they have a lot of veggies and fruits all the time. And then um, exercise, they have the equipment on the fourth floor, so that's you know easy to just go up one flight of stairs and do a little bit every day. So, yeah, I'd say I'm pretty healthy. Um, I eat kind of well. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, it's hard being in the dorms because you just kind of have to rely on what the calf serves you. And I really don't know where a lot of that comes from. Like, I, I, we did do a, you can be, you can definitely be healthy with, like, um, fruits and vegetables. But as far as, like, how I try to be healthy, I try to eat more food that's um, locally grown and in season. And that's definitely hard as a college student um, or even organic. Plus, mm -hmm. it, it's generally, so, sometimes it's, it's more expensive. Mm -hmm. And... I know when I'm off campus next year, I'll be uh, experimenting with what I'm buying during the week and just finding time to even go and uh, go grocery shopping. I know that's a struggle for a lot of people. Uh, well, I wake up, skip breakfast, because I'd rather sleep, um, go to class, go to, go to, <laughs> I go to lunch, <laughs> go to another class, and then wait around until dinner, and then I, I don't know, eat then. Um, usually some type of sandwich for lunch, and I don't know, maybe like twice a month, a salad. You know, what I always say, you should eat what you like and like what you eat. <laughs> food should be fun, and it shouldn't be this burdening thing that you think is going to make so much difference. And probably the only other thing I would say is a lot of times people's relationship with food is, is connected to their feeling about weight, their mm -hmm. weight or body. Mm -hmm. And really, um, to not look at a body mass index, but it really come in and talk about um, about why you're uncomfortable with your weight and what, what might be impacting that or mm -hmm. maybe where you need to go with that. But, you know, just try, not, try to keep those two things separate, and that's very hard for people. Another item that is associated with college is coffee. It is certainly a typical drink on this campus, maybe when we are cramming for those exams on the fourth floor of the library or just trying to make it to Thursday afternoon. I asked her her thoughts on coffee and caffeine. I think with caffeine, I mean... I don't really have an issue against caffeine. Mm -hmm. I think what I look at when I talk to students is if you have a day without caffeine, would you have a headache? <laughs> then you might want to, you know, tone it down just mm -hmm. a tad. <laughs> but if if you have a one or two cups of coffee a day and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't affect you if you can't get to coffee one day, then it's probably just something you like to drink. Mm -hmm. And that's not a problem. Or if you're drinking coffee instead of drinking milk or something more nutrient-dense, and you're not getting those nutrients in another way, then you might want to sort of mix it up a little bit to make sure you get what you need mm -hmm. 
as well as enjoy what you like to drink. Assistant Professor of Physiology Janice Schwartz at Michigan State also had some thoughts about caffeine. Now, she's an avid coffee drinker herself, and her insight really intrigued me. Well, if it's just caffeine, and, it, and coffee is uh, very complex, mm-hmm. one of my personal favorites, <laughs> but, I mean, it has uh, at least 300 chemicals in it that are just natural from the coffee bean. Um, and uh, if it's just caffeine, say, for example, an individual are taking a supplement of caffeine, which I wouldn't recommend, it's kind of a, um, it, it can cause, the, the desired effect can be um, passed over, and you can actually get, like, little tiny tremors and things that aren't useful. You know, instead of being more awake and refreshed. Sure. So I think coffee is fine, um, and but the caffeine part of it, if it's just pure caffeine, there's some effects of caffeine that are not desirable. But in the context of coffee, especially if there's something else like uh, milk or cream in it, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's got many, believe it or not, um, good constituents. In it. And and one, I was doing uh, dietary supplement research. We actually researched some of these. So they were accompany, they were chemicals that accompany caffeine that had protective effects and that were actually functioned a little as antioxidants. So unless you're sensitive to it, uh, if your heart gets rapid or you feel shaky, and that happens in some people but not most, mm-hmm. then I think it's fine. Okay. Um, and it and most of the Believe it or not, the health things are uh, equally what you avoid. In other words, the dangerous things to avoid as well as the good things to to consume. Mm-hmm. But coffee, I'm, I'm rather neutral on in that sense. Okay. What else? Do I Energy have? drinks are different. That's um, true. I don't know if that's a popular, but I know there are many of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of them... Uh, m- actually, uh, they're not that great. They don't have good effects on the kidneys. And they do contain caffeine, which is not the big villain, but uh, there are other things that do seem like they would be good but may not be in the combination used. Uh, Taurine, for example, is one of them, and certain other ones. And especially if an individual uh, drinks energy drinks and and then works out or plays soccer, exercises or something, that combination is bad, Mm -hmm. for example. So I don't think those are preferred, but there are, there's enormous variation among them, too. Mm-hmm. Besides coffee and energy drinks, another common beverage on a college campus is alcohol. The National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism reports that four out of five college students drink alcohol. Now, of those students, about half of them engage in binge drinking, which is when you irregularly drink large quantities of alcohol. Uh, things that I didn't know were so prevalent apparently are, um, one of them is alcohol consumption. Mm. I guess I'm a little naive, and, but I happen to know something about that. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, fast foods and uh, sacrificing dietary and lifestyle things for uh, the demands of college, I guess. Mm -hmm. And now you touched on alcohol, and I think that's a very interesting topic to start because I feel like you have your week diet and then you have your weekend diet for a college student. And with that weekend diet is that consumption of alcohol. So what are your thoughts on that? Um, But in terms of the volume of consumption and as well as the um, frequency of consumption? Well, I'll tell you, I learned uh, recently, I mean, I've, I've become a, a course director for pathology, mm-hmm. and in my, my hundreds of hours of preparation, I learned a lot about alcohol. I didn't have real preformed ideas. I mean, I've never really, you know, felt one way or the other about it unless someone, you know, gets in a car accident or something. But what I discovered was quite a shock. 
um, the alcohol, even just a few drinks, causes enormous changes in the body. And I'm, the ones that I'm aware of uh, are focused mainly on the liver and the things that the liver impacts. And, of course, that's many things. And uh, binge drinking, which I assume maybe you're referring to, mm-hmm. um, is certainly one of these things. Uh, it's unbelievable <laughs> the number that people survive this. First of all, drink alcohol more than one drink, at least maybe, say, three drinks or four, and I'm only talking about beers, and certainly worse for um, the higher percentages, actually causes the liver, the cells of the liver to swell, and it causes them to uh, store fat that they would otherwise be metabolizing and releasing. Mm-hmm. And so the entire liver gets larger, and it's, if you were to see it, it would look very fatty. And um, there's one case that I present that uh, is a case about a young man who um, won a brandy drinking bet in a bar, and and, uh, and died four days later. And uh, what ha- and then they show his liver because apparently he underwent autopsy and was unbelievable. Uh, just and I'm not sure how much was consumed, but that particular liver um, actually almost doubled in size. That's an extreme example. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, so drinking a few drinks or more than a few drinks will cause swelling, fatty changes, and then if there's any trauma to that area, you know, say the person gets in a fight or falls or something, that liver is more likely to rupture and bleed. Mm-hmm. Or uh, other things that happen is it, it, it induces hypoglycemia, it drives the blood sugar down um, if a person hasn't eaten. And I think a lot of people probably intuitively know, you know, something about the effects of eating and then drinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it depends on an individual's constitution, how that works. It also um, it decreases the blood pressure and the body temperature. Like Janice said, of course, alcohol is okay if it is consumed in moderation. And if you are legal age, perhaps. Now, I asked some students about their drinking habits. Um, well, um, I don't know. I usually drink, I guess, uh, about two days in the weekend, Friday and Saturday. Mm-hmm. And I also sleep a lot more. I sleep a lot later and just wake up whenever I decide it's time. And I don't know. I don't drink that much, I guess. I don't drink to super excess anymore. Freshman year I did, but not so much now. Uh, surprisingly, not as often as some people would expect me to. Uh, when I when I do, it's great. <laughs> when when I do go out, I do I do, uh, I do drink. Um, not like an not like an obnoxious amount or an unhealthy amount. Um, I definitely watch like kind of get a feel of where I'm at and like I know what what my cutoff point is. But uh, I mean, if you're talking from a healthy level, it, it's it's never healthy. Like. Uh, um, calories and, and all that. Um, but yes, I do. After talking to the students, I did a little more research about how drinking affects our body. The National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism said that alcohol actually interferes with your brain communication pathways and can actually affect what your brain looks like and how it works. Sure, this is sometimes referred to as being drunk. It's when your mood and behavior is changed while it is more difficult to think clearly and move with coordination. In any case, the good thing is that changes that I'm talking about, unless you have actual damage occur, such as a swelling and uh, incorporation of fat and enlargement, are reversible mm-hmm. when the individual stops 
after a certain if they stop for a certain amount of time, then the liver will go back to normal. But in the meantime, if an individual drinks every weekend, then uh, you don't give uh, give it quite enough of a chance. Mm -hmm. And so, and there are a whole list of things. It actually drinking alcohol actually reduces the ability of the body um, to take up certain vitamins, especially the B vitamins and some minerals, and we have our own antioxidants that protect us. Glutathione is one. I'm not sure if, uh, if that's a familiar one, but mm-hmm. alcohol interferes with the uh, generation, the body's ability to synthesize glutathione. And so the likelihood of certain um, infections increases. Um, frighteningly, um, the likelihood of um, contracting hepatitis, for example, increases as well. So, And it has other effects on, on the immune system. And number of things. So that's it's kind of uh, difficult. I I've been asked um, why is it that uh, people say, for example, red wine is so you know good for you and so mm-hmm. on. And what those and it's not untrue. What those studies mean is that the 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 um, the uh, molecules from the skins of red grapes, which are called resveratrol, which you can buy as a supplement are actually the, uh, that's the part of it that's good for you, not the alcohol. Mm-hmm. And so individuals that consume maybe a glass of wine over a lot, over, you know, slowly over a period of time would get the benefit from it. Hmm. And I, I'm not sure if college students do that. I mean, maybe I on occasion. <laughs> on occasion, yeah. Sure. Okay. So because what it's it, a matter of dose over time. The mm-hmm. higher dose in mm-hmm. a shorter time, it has the uh, more potent effects. Sure. Well, varies a lot mm-hmm. with individuals because the way alcohol is metabolized, um, it's a stepwise fashion, and each step produces another metabolite. And, in fact, what's known as a hangover is really associated with the accumulation of certain metabolites. Mm-hmm. And as you probably know, some people will drink a certain amount and have a terrible hangover, and others may not, mm-hmm. although I guess everybody would after you know, after a point. But um, so it's related to the type of alcohol in the metabolite. So s- some of us have enzymes. They're not abnormal, but they are slightly different than others. And so they're more or less able to go through those steps and metabolize alcohol all the way down to its harmless metabolites. But others uh, slow in their um, ability to do this. And so certain metabolites accumulate. Acetaldehyde is one of them. And they're uh, toxic, and they actually are the things that cause trouble. Mm. So it's uh, so there's great variation. So as far that's one um, one answer, mm-hmm. and the other is sure one beer probably would not hurt uh, very many people. I mean, it'd be a rare individual mm-hmm. if if it wasn't you know more than that. But even amounts that don't seem too high, like three, four, five beers can actually cause damage. Mm -hmm. And like Janice said, too much drinking can change the way your organs look. It can actually stretch and droop your heart muscle and cause an irregular heartbeat. Lastly, drinking too much can weaken your immune system, making your body an easy target for disease. But there is some positive research that actually shows adults who drink a moderate amount of alcohol could actually prevent coronary heart disease. Even so, moderation and legality is key. You know, as we were talking about all of these health issues, 
I was wondering how aware students are of what they are actually doing and putting in their body. Well, I think it's I think uh, there's a greater interest now mm. than when I was a student. I, I couldn't. I mean, I never. No one ever talked about diet, and now it is a it's a point of discussion at least, and it is interesting um, in in this group of people. But um, also their trends, you know. And uh, when you're young and strong and healthy, you don't think of necessarily long-term impacts. Some things. Uh, have and other things it's a habit you develop a lifestyle habit in college a, a person may retra- may retain and may or may not be good so um i i'm not sure the depth of the interest of the average person but i think there are a lot of things um if they were known would change people's habits and and maybe even change policies mm-hmm. um like fructose high fructose corn syrup is is so prevalent in so many things that you wouldn't even expect it to be in, and it, it's actually a terrible thing to consume. Um, also, uh, trans fats in, in Michigan and many states, if there is less than 500 milligrams, which is a half of a gram, then it doesn't have to be reported, which mm-hmm. is also listed as uh, partially um, hydrogenated. Mm-hmm. It says this such and such contains partially hydrogenated oils, which is just a synonym essentially for trans fats. Mm-hmm. Then it, it contains more than a, a half of a gram. Mm-hmm. It, even less than a half of a gram is not good, but it hasn't been um, <clears throat> hasn't been I don't know outlawed or, or um, prevented mm-hmm. from being used. And it's used in many favorites <laughs> like uh, cakes, pies, muffins, mm-hmm. uh, cookie dough, frozen pizza, mm-hmm. etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And this is an unnatural process, hydrogenation, that uh, actually causes sort of a stiffening of a a certain type of fat that wouldn't otherwise be so bad, and and it leads to all kinds of heart effects. As I continued to think about the health of a college student, sleep came to mind. Now, if you walk by the library at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., or even 4 a.m., there are still some students studying away. Medical News Today actually reported that 30% of students sleep at least 8 hours a night, but 20% of students report they stay up and pull an all-nighter at least once a month, while 35% stay up to at least 3 a.m. once a week. Now, how does a sleep deprivation affect our health? Sleep is overrated, I think, in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I mean by that is twofold. You don't need 12 hours, well, unless you're still growing, you don't need 12 hours sleep. You don't need 10 hours sleep. And even eight hours is wonderful, but it's not a mandatory It's to be uh, compatible with life. If there are circumstances where you only get a few hours of sleep, but you really sleep in that few hours, mm-hmm. usually that isn't going to have any serious impact if you don't sleep. If a person is really sleep-deprived and stays up all night <clears throat> to study, it drives the immune system down. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, uh, you know, other things can happen. I mean, it's a, it's a known fact, and, and I don't know if anybody can avoid it. So missing sleep, staying up all night is bad, <laughs> at least temporarily, not long-term, but it has a lot of negative effects. Plus, it, it may not help the person uh, to succeed in the event they want to, like, for example, the exam. Mm-hmm. However, getting less sleep isn't the worst thing. Medical News Today also said that the immune system can weaken with lack of sleep. This lack of sleep is often from stress, a busy schedule, or a heavy workload. Sleep contributes to our mental health as well. Without it, we can have anxiety, depression, ADHD, or bipolar disorder. 
It can also affect our ability to concentrate, our energy levels, and our mood. Although this is true, Janice did say that there's a little bit of flexibility in our sleep schedules. And I was surprised by this, because as a college student, I don't sleep much. I probably get about five hours of sleep on a typical basis, but I spoke with a couple students who made sleeping a priority. Uh, well, every night, um, I don't know, usually seven to eight hours, I guess. I, I don't know, I goof off a lot, so that might be why, because not in like a super tough major where I have to study that much, so. Um, I would say it's, it's, it's definitely not below average, but it's not above average. Uh, I probably, I, I try and get sleep, um, I think I do about seven hours on average, usually in a night, so I try to go to bed around like at least by 12.30, and I wake up around around seven or eight. Um, um, probably between seven and eight. Honestly. How about on weekends? Mm, probably nine. Yeah, a little bit more. <laughs> sure, okay, so we talked about eating, we talked about sleeping, but how about we touch on stress? It's as if we're in this period of incubation, as we're trying to figure out what we want to be and who we want to be in our future. That certainly sounds a bit stressful, right? According to Janice, stress can be harmful, but it is dependent on its severity. Well, if it's real stress, I mean, there's stress and there's stress. Mm -hmm. If it's the kind of stress you can use, mm -hmm. you know, like you're, you're under stress, but that kind of drives you to do certain things and you're, you know, mm -hmm. you develop a tempo, that's actually good. But if it's real stress, even if it's low level, you feel that, I don't know, knotted up feeling inside mm -hmm. that uh, um, has a, a negative impact because it's, it triggers a release of your own natural cortisol and that uh, has a, a, a diminishing effect on all kinds of things in your body, your bones, your uh, ability to, to utilize and break down fat, and many other things. And as a result, you may um, gain weight in, in the truncal area, in the <laughs> abdominal area, places, mm -hmm. as I said, that's one of the places that's not the, you know, it's one of the least desirable right. places. And that can have that kind of an impact. So... So if you can try to, if a student can try to reinterpret their stress, mm -hmm. try to use it, you know, um, somehow channel it into energy, then, then it could be a good thing. As I continued researching stress, I found out there were four primary sources. The first is the environment, like noise, pollution, traffic, and the weather. The second would be physiological stress, like illness, injuries, inadequate sleep, or poor nutrition. The third is your thoughts. That's right, the way you think can actually affect how you respond to stress. So if you have negative thoughts or negative self-talk, that can contribute to stress. Lastly, there are social stressors, which could be financial problems, work demands, or even social events. All of those can be prevalent on a college campus. But according to one MSU student, it comes down to management. Uh, I probably over-involve myself sometimes. I, I always tell myself I don't, but um, I'm... I'm involved in quite a few things. I, I sign on to do some stuff with people every now and then. And although I'm still finding time to get everything done and uh, also spend time with friends and my girlfriend, um, I definitely, there are definitely days where I just feel absolutely drained. Um, nothing terrible, although I, I am being a hypocrite because I am just getting over being sick from this past uh, weekend, which probably is attributing to... Um, coming back from break switching instantly back to like the food habits that I have at school and 
sleep scheduling, not mm-hmm. like when I'm at home and I just slept all day. Yeah. <laughs> I think I know that's my biggest issue is not knowing um, when to say no to certain opportunities or anything that comes up. Mm-hmm. Um, there definitely have been days, not not often, like every every once in a great while, probably like uh, maybe once a semester when everything's really coming down to like a deadline or it's, you know, it just really becomes crunch time. Um, there's definitely times where I'm just like really stressed and I just get very grumpy and want to be, be with myself and <laughs> just do everything on my own. But um, most of the time I manage things fairly well mm-hmm. and don't let things bother me or stress me out because um, I just think that drains your energy even more. And the last component of the college lifestyle that I really wanted to explore was physical health. How much time do students spend exercising and moving? Is that important to our overall health? Here's what a couple students had to say. I could definitely use more. Uh, I, I, I try to, I, last week and a little bit of the week before, I tried run, running um, uh, about two to three times a week because realistically before that I wasn't exercising at all, which um, kind of worked for me because like, I have a very good metabolism and I don't really need to worry too much about it. Um, and I don't eat like really fatty foods like every day, so that would help me out. But um, I did notice the days I was running, um, although I felt really tired as I was running and after I was done running, um, as soon as I showered, ate breakfast, I had I just felt pretty great throughout the day. Um, so I want to continue that. Unfortunately, I've been like busy and a little sick, so it's been hard. It's been hard to kind of like make time for it. I do know there's a lot of people that have that issue, but I also know a lot of people that like they really will make time for going to the gym and working out, and like that's like sometimes a priority over certain or like other things that probably should be a priority but I mean more power to them that they they take the time out of their day and go do that um Um, I try to once a day and uh, I walk to all my classes so that helps too Um, at least once a day and then we'll have indoor soccer so that'll help too um well I try to exercise when I do it's usually the uh, bro workout of arms and chest but I've been trying to work more on the legs as a healthier person Mm -hmm. And I should do more cardio now that I think about it. I also met up with Rick McNeil, the director of recreational facilities at Michigan State. He gave us his thoughts about the college workout scene. Well, right now in the wintertime, it's truly our peak capacity time just based on demand. The weather we have kind of drives the bulk of physical activity indoors. So we open at 6 and close about midnight. Typical early bird activity only those willing to get out of bed early enough to come in to work out, uh, play ball, racquetball. That tends to be an older population, a lot of faculty and staff or grad students. And then um, some classes during the morning part, but generally starting about 11 o'clock uh, is when we start to hit a large volume of traffic in all activity areas, fitness, gymnasiums, um, our courts, pools, etc. And then the student traffic really ramps up about 3 to 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and that will continue on until 10, 11 o'clock at night. And then at this time of year, we're also uh, pinched on facilities because we're also running competitive intramural sports programs in intramural basketball, which we have a capacity of 320 teams, indoor soccer. And so we are truly cramped for um, adequate facilities 
because we can't accommodate all of the interest that students have for participating in a variety of sport, recreation, fitness type activities. There is also this unique atmosphere of competition in recreational facilities when you start talking about the intramural sports. The competitive intramural sports are really for those students that likely were high school athletes and they still have that drive for competition. Uh, there's the social interaction engagement with the traditional res hall floor putting in kind of a traditional intramural sports team to students at Michigan State who are uh, aligning with other uh, students from their high schools. Maybe they play ball together. And so there's that drive for having that competitive aspect for, let's take basketball as an example. Uh, thousands of students every day are playing pickup basketball, but they want to have that chance for that competition. Uh, they still have that drive to compete. Uh, they like to play the sport, but it's a drive to compete, drive to win, the same type of activity that they had in high school, and that continues. And then also, because of the variety of sports that we have, it's an opportunity for students to take part in an activity that perhaps they didn't have a chance to participate in in high school. Mm -hmm. And so there's a chance for learning some new sports, gaining new skills, whether it's in the racket types or other types of uh, activities. So there's a chance for students to engage in new activities as well. And for your, from your perspective, is there an hourly commitment that you recommend for um, you know, in, physical activity in college and beyond? Well, the, the basic standard, whether you are looking at American Sports Medicine or uh, the President's Council on Physical Fitness, in general, it is 150 minutes of um, uh, rec medium to intensity levels of cardiovascular activity. So that 150 minutes breaks down to the standard, you know, three to four times a week. And then ideally, individuals should also be involved in a couple times a week of strength training. So if you put those things in, it's about five times a week. Individuals should get into the routine of, of having involved in um, you know, cardiovascular activity that gets their heart rate at 80% you know, capacity for about 30 minutes um, a day, three to four times a week, and then you throw in strength training. And that can be accomplished in a variety of activities. It doesn't have to take place just in a traditional gym. You can get that heart rate up swimming, you can get it up playing racket sports, playing basketball. So there's a variety of activities so that you are playing a sport, but a residual benefit is you're also getting cardiovascular benefit through sprinting up and down on a basketball court. So you're there maybe to play ball because you like to play basketball or soccer or whatever, but you're also getting that benefit of elevating your heart rate to those recommendation levels. And do you feel that the majority of students do that and reach those levels? There's no way to measure that exactly and accurately. Um, so we look at participation levels on our campus. Uh, our best guesstimate based on student access to the building, the swiping, we're probably only having uh, 35 to maybe 45, 50% of the students at most accessing our, our facilities on what I would call a regular basis. In institutions that have the amount of capacity for the student population, that ratio can be as high as 80%. On some small campuses, it's as high as 90%. So the shortfall between what I just said, ours is between 35 and 45%, and optimally 80% is we simply don't have the capacity of sport activities, fitness, anything, uh, the facilities to accommodate the activity. 
on a campus of nearly 50,000 students, we have about half the capacity that we should have, and that's our single largest uh, problem we have is we don't have sufficient quantity, yet yet alone adequate quality uh, activity spaces for all this activity to take place. And Rick hopes to someday enhance the facilities at Michigan State to engage more students in physical health. My efforts are all about trying to educate the campus, demonstrate the value that participating in regular uh, physical activity, students being active, learning life home skills um, is demonstrated through the institution that uh, we need to put in the financial investment to expand the facilities as has happened at Purdue and Iowa and Ohio State. Uh, it's going to happen at University of Michigan and so lots of other places uh, have the capacity and uh, we have about half the capacity we should have. We have about 240,000 square feet of activity space between IM Sports East, West and Circle. For campus this size we should have nearly 500,000 square feet. It's a big solution problem, it's an expensive solution, but Again, uh, we're potentially serving 80% of all students, so we need facilities that can adequately serve, you know, on average, close to 40,000 students participating on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And he realizes the importance of physical activity, especially within the college atmosphere. Of all the, of the um, impediments to academic success, most of them are health-related, whether it's from students are ill and missing class, they are, have mental health issues of stress and anxiety or depression. They're not getting enough sleep. All of those things, as well as not enough physical activity, contribute to students' poor health, which has a direct bearing on any type of assessment test that's, that's been done. Um, health issues are the predominant reason why students aren't successful. So we're in the midst of undertaking assessment studies right now and trying to do some correlations by assessing populations of students who are uh, meeting those standards and doing some analysis against pockets of, of students who are not meeting those standards. And, you know, our preliminary data would, you know, indicates there's a correlation in a measure of students who uh, take part in our fitness programs to a population of students that don't take part in fitness programs. Those, those students who are actively participating in fitness uh, after two years have a higher GPA, they have uh, attempted and accumulated more credit hours, they have a higher retention rate to the institution, so uh, there's the seems to be a correlation that for students who are more active, going to be more healthy, they're better students, they're more successful, and um, they just have overall greater academic success. Mm -hmm. However, some students claim there is not enough time in the day to fit in a workout. Again, based on survey data, uh, the number one reason students give is um, not enough time. Mm -hmm. And time is simply a measure of priority. For anyone can, do, anyone can do anything they want if they make it a high enough priority. So for those students who are indicating time, it's about managing their time and finding a time in their daily routine where they can get this physical activity because everyone takes time to eat, everyone takes time to sleep, Granted, not enough. They take time for all the other activities. It just has to be a higher priority. Mm -hmm. uh, for some, on our campus, for some of those students, it's going to be access problems because we're too crowded. If you want to come into our fitness center at 530 afternoon, you're going to have to wait or you're not going to get it at all. You know, in the evenings, all of our courts are going to be filled. So part of it is we don't have sufficient capacity so that students, you know, have those issues eliminated.
Um, but it really gets down to it needs to be important enough. Other studies are indicating also that there's uh, the advent of technology um, gives cause for students to be more sedentary, to spend more time in the room. Uh, they're, quote, connected through technology and um, lots of other impediments to give um, students adequate motivation to get out and be more physically active because there's a lot of distractions through social media, all things internet, um, but it really gets down to, in my opinion, it gets down to priority. Uh, individuals will do in their daily life what's important. Still, Rick can't help but notice how much the physical health scene has changed in the past 30 years. I would say going back 30 years ago, I don't, there's no way we could have um, guessed how much, uh, how much activity is driven around fitness. You know, 30 years ago, uh, the patterns were individuals playing sports. They were actively involved in sports. And so for girls, those opportunities in sports were limited. So you fast forward 30 to 40 years, um, Title IX, gender equity issues, girls through their adolescent and high school are having far more opportunities to engage in sport activities. Um, the boys had always had those opportunities. So, so students, in spite of physical activity that's being eliminated or curtailed in curriculum, in adolescent, boys and girls are being more physically active. So our college students are going to come to campus with those habits and lifestyles that they have been practicing since high school and, and, and before. And since so many um, K-12 kids are involved in some form of physical activity, they're going to bring those patterns, hopefully those lifestyle, hopefully those habits when they come on campus. So there's no doubt that students are much more physically active now on a proportion of population than they were 30, 40 years ago. And a big chunk of it has been driven by fitness, and a big chunk of it has been driven by far more women now participating in a variety of activities. Um, and so men have always been involved in sports, but now they're also involved in fitness as well. So there's far more things for students to do that are fun, that are socially engaging, and that also create opportunities for getting those uh, physical activity minimums that we talked about. But the benefits of physical activity are certainly vast. The more physically active you are, the less stress and anxiety and depression you're going to have. The more physically active you are, the better nutrition you have, the better you're going to be prepared for sleep at night. So anyone who voids themselves of any of those things, void yourselves of sleep, you're going to be too exhausted, it's going to give another excuse not to take part in required physical activity. And for individuals who don't get enough sleep, for individuals who don't take part in regular physical activity, they're more apt to have higher stress anxiety levels, which leads to increased measures of uh, mental health issues. And I'm by no means a mental health expert, but I'm simply being listening and hearing those who are experts, and that's a correlation um, that always seems to come around. And with this workout scene, some try to make sure they don't gain that freshman 15, the sophomore 7, the junior jiggle, or become that super senior in terms of size. And Janice gave us a little insight on that topic of weight gain. Well, you know, studying is not a, a mobile <laughs> event, <laughs> that's generally. That's true. And so that's, that's one thing. And then eating while you study is great. I mean, it does, uh, you know, it makes the process much more uh, fun. Mm -hmm. 
and satisfying, I guess I could say. And so for that reason, it, it may promote an increase in weight. But a lot of things cause an increase in weight that you wouldn't expect. In other words, what you take in, the amount of food, the number of calories, of course, will translate. In, if you double your intake, you know, then you're likely to gain weight. So that mm-hmm. makes sense. But other things, like some of the things I mentioned, believe it or not, have an indirect impact on waking and mm-hmm. even the um, unflattering waking, mm-hmm. you know, certain parts of the body, which sure. then impact other things. And some of the things that I mentioned actually do do that, which is unfortunate. So it may go hand in hand with these things. And and when you're, uh, you know, on campus, you're going to consume or purchase what is around, what's, mm-hmm. what's prevalent, what's available. If, they, if there was an effort, I mean, an apple is an apple. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if there's an effort to make it appealing, that would be even better. But I, I understand. Sure. But apple, apple pie. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You know? Another thing is um, uh, colds, flus, uh, mono, mm-hmm. things that people catch, you know, or worse, worse than that, of course. Um, there are, there is validity to some, to the immune-supporting effects of some supplements. Such as astragalus, which is similar to but different from echinacea, and I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but mm-hmm. it's quite uh, it's quite good. These are just, as you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of supplements. Sure. You know, and anywhere you go, practically you see them, drugstores or grocery stores. Um, the immune supporter type supplements, those two that I mentioned, mm-hmm. actually can help you. For example, say you're all your coworkers are getting sick, but you're not sick. And if for a couple of days you were to take um, a couple of these, usually capsules are the best way to get them, mm-hmm. you may actually um, circumvent that. You may actually not come down with something that you're exposed to. So they do boost the immune system, and I'm not sure how much, um, how well that's known. Mm-hmm. As we finish talking about the college lifestyle and its various components in the realm of health, we wanted to see a real-world example. What does a typical week look like for a college student? What is the balance between class, work, eating, exercise, and sleeping? Well, we found out when we sent our very own Stephen Rich out to report on his college lifestyle. So I started this article trying to write about a week in the life of a student. I recorded every interaction I had from class to work to even some illicit Woo! behavior. Like most college students, I'm sure, my weekdays started with an alarm clock and ended with the inevitable mountain of homework. Oh my god, I swear I'm never going to finish this. And my weekends were filled with inappropriate stories and mistakes I prefer not to disclose. Hey, what you doing tonight? But as I finished my week, I had a hard time coming up with a story that showcased the life of a typical college student. And that's when I realized. As a college student, there isn't a consistent week. Sure, I go to class every day and I make bad decisions on the weekend, but there isn't a set narrative, set routine, or a set outcome. But that's what's great about this moment in my life. Nothing is ever the same. Every day I get the chance to rewrite my story and send my life in a new direction. I'm not tied down to anything or anyone, and that is liberating. We get to craft our days, our weeks, and even our year. We get to write our futures as we engross ourselves in being the atypical college students. Just when you were getting used to this place You were getting used to these bones You were getting used to the changes Well, the change won't leave you alone 
With that, we close our discussion on the health and lifestyle of a college student. We also take this time to say thank you for joining us here on Impact's Exposure. Special thanks to our producer, Gabriela Saldivia, our station manager, Sam Riddle, and our general manager, Ed Glazer. Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next week, I'm Abby Newton for Exposure on Impact 89FM. Sometimes I'm happy, sometimes I'm blue. My disposition depends on you. I never mind the rain from the skies, just as long as there's sun in your eyes. Sometimes I love you, sometimes I hate you. But when I hate you, baby, it's because I love you. That's how I am. So what can I do? I'm happy when I'm with you. Sometimes I'm happy, sometimes I'm blue. My disposition depends on you. I never mind the rain from the skies. Just as long as I can have the sunshine in your eyes. Sometimes I love you, sometimes I hate you. But when I love you, Da 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 da
from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Impact Exposure.